0: Our reading this morning can be found in the first letter of John, 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 29. That's on page 1226 in the Church Bible. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you... The anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
1: About 55 years ago, I had a conscious, worldly encounter. I went to the local cinema in Pontedà to see 101 Dalmatians in black and white. The worldly encounter was that my father said to me, if you go to the cinema, what if the Lord comes? He implied I was being Worldly even at about six or seven years of age. The age of innocence, I suppose. Because from his perspective, that being a Christian was somebody who withdrew from anything that was associated with the world, like going into a a public house, or drinking, or women wearing earrings. I know there's no hope for some of us, is there? although that's a sort of caricature now, and that's a bit unfair to look back, at the time that was held very sincerely. What does it mean to be worldly? What is our benchmark as Christian people as to what is right and what is wrong? What are things in our lives whereby we can say, I don't think the Lord would be pleased if I did that, said that. I guess the problem today is that we tend not to have any reference point at all. And whilst it's easy to look back and to criticise a former generation, we should ask ourselves, what is our reference point as to what is pleasing to the Lord? Do we have any at all? The the true story is told of a a lay preacher, local preachers. They used to call them in South Wales locust preachers because people used to come to your home and eat you out of house and home. And you, if you had a local preacher, he came morning and evening, dinner and tea. Well, on one occasion, a local preacher was staying with a farmer. And he was a very straight-laced, clear preacher who knew exactly what was right, what was wrong, what was worldly, what wasn't worldly. And the farmer wasn't impressed with his sermon. So after dinner, he took him out to, to the barn where His donkey was tied up and he said, this is the farmer to the local preacher. I want to introduce you to my Christian friend, the donkey. The preacher wasn't impressed. Well, he said, according to your sermon this morning, Christians don't smoke. He doesn't. Christians don't swear. I've never heard him ever say anything like that. He definitely doesn't drink. He's never been to the cinema and he observes the Sabbath. Well... You see the point, don't you? It's a caricature. What do you say then when we come to verse 15? And it's a tricky one, isn't it? Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, don't we appreciate this beautiful day? Don't the Psalms proclaim creation in all its majesty? Of course, we are not saying that we don't value all that God has given to us in his world. But there's a subtle thing here and it's this, that somehow in our lives, in our living, in our relating, in our marriages, in our families, with our grandchildren and our final days, it seems somehow that we are terribly, terribly rooted into this world. And we forget that we are actually, actually a pilgrim people. We are a people on a journey. And so somehow we have to hold that intention. It's great to value the good things, the relationships, all that we are privileged to enjoy. But they are not permanent. They are not permanent. We will not take them with us. So the challenge this morning as we pick our way through 1 John um, is this. What about practicing this truth? Not simply saying that we believe it. We've been in John long enough now to see these central themes of love, light, life as they impinge upon us. With the frequent challenge to believe certain truths and to allow them to have an impact upon us. Look at John chapter 2 and verse 6, for example. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. That's a tall order. How often do we find ourselves straying how often do we find ourselves getting stuck in sort of cul-de-sacs of embittered experience and so forth? We are to walk as Jesus walked, in the light, with love, with his life. This is the challenge. So to believe certain things, to live in a certain way. What we saw last Sunday was this that uh, there were three objective tests that we made for all believers. The first is the the test of the character of God. Is God who he says he is? Is he really holy? Who lives in unapproachable light, greater than the sun itself? Is he? Is that what he's really like? Well then, if it is, verse 7 of John 1 Chapter 1 says, but if we walk in the light, the meaning walk is if we're living in light, which is accountability, as he is in the light, something happens to us in our pilgrim relationships. We have fellowship with one another, and we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And there's this wonderful ongoing relationship because of the character of God. And secondly, the challenge of obedience there it is. The song that we've just sung, it's the it's it's origin of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth. And in many churches today, they will, at a certain point in their worship, stand up and, and confess their faith through the Apostles' Creed. We've sung it in a modern version. Confessing that Jesus is our Lord. Challenge of obedience. And then finally, the choice of love. We choose love. We create love. In marriage, you make love. In friendship, you cultivate love. It's something you choose. Or you hold yourself back and say, no, I'm not going to get involved. It's often been a source of uh, of debate, really, why Jesus actually said to his disciples, look, I give you a command. It's not a choice in the sense that you can pick and choose. It's a command to love. So he says, choose it now. How can you command someone to love? Love is surely something of the heart. And what he's saying is this, that whatever our feelings we have chosen, To follow Jesus Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how the world will take notice. Not simply that you go to church. That's okay. But that you belong to Jesus. And as you come now to this section. Verses 15 to 29. The issue of warning. A slight element of discord. Seems to come into his letter. There are false teachers. Who come like a sort of. An infectious virus. How do you pick up a virus? Often you, don't, you can't tell sometimes. And your immune system begins to break down. And you're vulnerable. And you see these three things that he says. The first look at verse 19. They have left the fellowship of truth. That doesn't mean they stop going to church. It means to be part of a fellowship of people who believe certain things, who embrace one another and affirm each other. They contract out of that. It's the first sign of false teaching. And then secondly, they deny Jesus Christ. You see it in verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Strong language, isn't it? And then thirdly, in verse 26, the first They contract out of meaningful fellowship. They deny Jesus Christ. And they try to seduce believers. Get people to be like them. The great challenge of the gospel is we want people not to be like us. God forbid. But to be like Jesus Christ. And so in verse uh, 26. I am writing these things to you. About those who are trying to lead you astray. To lead you astray. Just turn over one page uh, to the New Testament, that way, not to the back, to 2 John. It's literally one page. And you'll come to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2. And look at these first two verses. One of the difficulties, it is hard for us to appreciate this, of the early church, was that it was plagued by these, these peripatetic heretics who were just roaming around making people like them so in in 2 Peter 2 and verse 1 listen to this but there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you present tense they will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Do you see that? There it is. And one could read on so many other references like this. So, knowing what you believe is absolutely vital. It's quite popular people think today, say, well, you know, I'm not really interested in doctrine, I just want to love Jesus. As if doctrine is such a terrible thing. Well, you love Jesus because what you know about him and doctrine points to him. It affirms certain things that are true of him. The Apostles' Creed, when we were on holiday, we went to a a beautiful abbey. And in Latin, we tried to work through the response of standing together and affirming the Apostles' Creed. And churches of all descriptions have tried to define what they believe. Just turn back and this time go to the book of Jude. Just the one-page book in the New Testament. Just to sort of clear the ground here that this isn't just a one-off thing. Um, one Jude, verse 5. Just by the opening book of Revelation. A little, a, a little letter, very concise. And here is Jude, trying to one of the apostles, trying to speak to the church and help them and encourage them. And in verse 5, he says this. Though you already know this. He's preaching a sermon that they already know about. Interestingly, he says, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Believing is very important. Okay. Now, turn to verse 12. Here's What... His picture language of heretics. These men are blemishes at your love feasts. The early church had an agape. We, last night we had a meal in the church. It was a love feast. Just believers being together, relating to another, talking and so forth and, and interacting. That's how the, the early church did this. So, these men are blemishes at your love feast, eating uh, with you, without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, no, look at this. they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn leaves without fruit, uprooted twice dead. What a description Can you imagine there are some countries we know that can go a year, eighteen months, sometimes, two years without rain. Can you imagine these people living in arid waste and they see these promising clouds and they say Hallelujah, at last the rains are coming. Look at the clouds. And nothing happens. They promise everything and give nothing. That's how it's described. And, okay, next Sunday is the harvest. And there's nothing. All leaves, all show. Nothing to sustain you. Heresy is, is as crucial as, as that. And one could illustrate in many other ways. So, therefore, what we believe is imperative. Now, here's an interesting thing, then. Does this mean we need to know all the arguments and learn our doctrine from memory? Here is a fascinating thing about the letter. It is at this very point that the Holy Spirit is crucial for believers. Look at verse 20, and it's a pivotal thing. In the light of all of this that's taking place, there's this phrase, but you, in contrast to all this that's going on, but you, what? You win the arguments? No. Look, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit. And you all know the truth. So you go, if you like, Can we, I hope this makes sense, from these objective theological doctrinal facts to the subjective experience now, of relating to Jesus. And at that point, yes, to love him is much important than simply to reason and to have arguments about him. You have the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? You have something that is absolutely unique. The spirit of truth and of love And of power. And often you can say, sometimes we say this, you know, that person, he or she, there is a true believer. We we, we relate to each other. In the common experience of life, our paths would never cross. But we have a Lord and a Savior. And the Spirit has come to indwell us. Look around you. If you were to look around this morning and see our fellow believers. And what hardships we've been through. What trials we've experienced. What difficulties. What setbacks? So many. Why are we here if that is so? Why haven't we given up? Why haven't we just said, you know, I'm up to here with religion. You can keep it. Talk to people outside. That's what they would say to you. Why are we here? People have endured so much. Such darkness. And where you would say, life is not fair. But you're in the light. You have the Holy Spirit. So much confusion. Somebody says this, somebody says that. Who's to believe anything? But you have the truth. That doesn't make you arrogant. It makes you humble. And think of the heartaches and the loss that you have. But you have his love. And it isn't only because you were brought up that way. That is... If you have had praying parents, you are doubly blessed, for sure. But that's no guarantee of embracing Jesus Christ. We know that. And just as John brings together light and love, here's a subjectively, and I hope we'll be open about this in terms of our, can I put it like this, our post-Christian experience. We came to faith in Christ. We should ask the question, how often have we received God's Spirit subsequently? You have the Holy One. Light and love, now he brings spirit and truth. The best illustration of this is, when we look around us, we're privileged to live near the the Chilterns where these beautiful kites, just with ease, effortless flight, come and swoop around, and they're quite beautiful birds. They have two wings, not one. And it's an illustration of the Christian life. Spirit and truth. Now, you will know that some people perhaps temperamentally are predisposed to saying, well, I I just, you know, say the truth and everything else fits into place. Really. Or other people say, no, no, experience it. (laughs) That's the acid test. Well, the point is, of course, here what John is saying is, it's both. And much more, both. And it's so easy, even among well-meaning Christians, to be polarized in some of these areas. That uh, remarkable leader, uh, David Watson, who was influential in encouraging people to to be filled with God's spirit, and uh, his premature death was a great loss to the church. Nevertheless, in his church, he said this. The word without the Holy Spirit, you just dry up. You're a dried up stick. But the spirit without the word, well, you know what you like. You blow up, you go there, you go here, and you're all over the place. But put them together. Put both together, spirit and truth, and you're going to grow. Grow up into Christ. You see the point? And that's what John is trying to do here. It's more than just knowing things. And some evangelicals are very good at nitpicking about things. Like a bird in flight. Two wings. That's our calling. Now, just to uh, conclude with two things. By way of, of application. And it's this. John now sets out two dangers that Christians face. And this is what we come to. So began the sermon. The world and its deceptive attractions... Nothing wrong with the world, we've said. We enjoy these good gifts just like anybody else. The world and its deceptive attractions, the Antichrists plural, the Antichrists and the distorted doctrines. At least perhaps now we're more ready to say, Yes, now I know what I believe. And, and, and I can point in the Bible and I can know from my experience and how I relate to others when I pray with them, when I meet in the home groups, when I share my life, that I'm not a sealed up unit. We have fellowship with one another. So look at these two headings, first of all. The, the world and its deceptive attractions. You see, that's where we come then. Verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Who comes first in your life? He has the rightful place. Not a close second. And you can't outgive him. You give to him. And you'll be surprised how much you've got to give. Withhold from him. And somehow you're just surviving. But you have to do it to know it. The term the world, it needs to be be understood in the light of things we've already said. Some Christians have withdrawn from the world. Come out from among them, they say. Be separate. Touch no unclean thing. And they have these rules and so forth. Like the Pharisees had with Jesus. One of the great criticisms of the Pharisees to Jesus was, you're worldly, you sit with sinners, eat with them, and so on. That was a constant criticism. Jesus was worldly, according to them. And there can develop, even with sincere people, a sort of an evangelical Phariseeism. Some Christians have withdrawn into a sort of a ghetto mentality. you try to have events that you want to bring people in and some, some, some Christians have no unbelieving friends at all. Well meant. This term, the world, is a very challenging term. And we can put our rules up, but we need to come to Scripture and embrace this wholeheartedly. Some people genuinely believe that they want to preserve a a, a remnant mentality. Do you know, the Puritans who had such a strong reformed theology, who were so influential in America when they were ejected from the Church of England, some of them actually taught that now they they had a holy seed, that their offspring were born regenerate. That's a blatant heresy that came from people who were so reformed, so straight-laced, so biblical. Well meant. One of the great things of learning from church history is not to repeat the mistakes. A remnant or an exclusive group, only we are the people well, you're aware of some of these, and maybe some of you have experienced it from upbringing and so on. But then the pendulum can swing the other way. Yes, you say, look at them, isn't that? That's terrible. Look at them. I wouldn't have anything to do with that. Okay. They, they, they say, come out from the world, be separate. We say, I'm in it. Up to my neck. There's no difference between me and my fellow Christians in how I relate, in my relationships, in my conversation, all that. Where is the difference then? Do you see that the, the pendulum is easy, isn't it, to, Maybe we've lost the distinctive of salt and light, which is the essence of our calling. Light to point to a better way Your people are in darkness. Salt so that we have bite, that we are not popular with everybody. How can we be? So in verses 15 to 17, it's, it's not a contradiction of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the world. It's not a contradiction of that. Christians, be Christ-like. Don't be squeezed into its mold. We are a pilgrim people. Live as people who will say there's yet more to come. Any stage in my life. Maybe you're here today and, yeah, like the couple yesterday, uh, Friday, who just got married. Life's in front of them. Or maybe you've retired. Maybe wherever you're at at any time, the best with the Lord is yet to be. And secondly and finally, the Antichrists. We'll come to this again so we don't need to spend too much time here. But the Antichrists and their insidious doctrines. Now, verses 18-29, anti is against. So, here it's very subtle. They, they use all these spiritual terms. And it's very attractive. But they're against Jesus. They're against Jesus. And there's this interesting phrase here, uh, verse 18, uh, the last, yeah, dear children. This is a warning against antichrists. You see it in the plural. When I was young, uh, I remember a sermon to say, Khrushchev was the Antichrist. It was well meant, but it wasn't a very good sermon. It's easy to say that, isn't it? But these are multiple Antichrists who, who, who cause division and confusion within the church. So, verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. What's that? That last hour is that period between the ascension, when Jesus' return to heaven, and his second coming. That period, the last hour. That's what we're in, in Bible terms. Now, it would be very easy to make that mean something else, wouldn't it? This is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. The spirit of the age in which we live. The days between the ascension and the Lord's return. And so are these terms, Antichrist, you'd find them in verse 18, 22, 24. False teachers, in other words. And the message that they deliver does not result in the transforming power of the gospel. Their message doesn't change lives, they only bring division and discord. And these false teachers stir up controversy, cause rifts and, and, and division within believing people. What John suggests here is this, that if they had been authentic members of the body of Christ, then they would have continued in the fellowship of God's people. And the point... there is for sure a vital link a connection between what you believe the content of your faith and to whom you believe Jesus Christ and how you live or how you behave there is a vital link there what you believe we believe in Jesus Christ whose death and the cross were sufficient for all our sins. We belong to him in the fellowship of his people with all of our failures and our faults and all of our difficulties and the personality clashes and all of that. Sometimes church life can be exceedingly difficult but enormously encouraging. That's just what it's like. To truly belong. Like any family where you have differences and, 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 and problems and heartaches. You, it's a wonderful... Uh, quote really the great preacher Charles Spurgeon he made it his custom it, to always get early to church and he was always telling his people you must evangelize you must share your faith and this is a wonderful story I've told it before but and so he said to this man who's just leaning by the gates big gates outside the Metropolitan Tabernacle big church opposite the Elephant and Castle in London and he said uh, I think you should come to this service tonight I'm preaching. A man said to Mr. Spurgeon, I'm not coming in as too many hypocrites there. And he said, That's all right, there's room for another one. <laughs> you see, we sometimes find ourselves defending the church as if somehow we've arrived. No, no. We are saved sinners. But there is a link between believing, belonging, and behaving. You ought to see signs of that. We're not perfect, but there ought to be signs of that. And the conclusion. It's a, it's, it's a lovely phrase that he, he ends on in verse 27. And it's, it's quite crucial, isn't it? As for you. Don't, don't criticize other people now. This is you. You're looking in the mirror, John is saying. The mirror of truth. Now, as for you. As for you. He comes back to the anointing. To the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. Look at that. As for you, the anointing you received from Him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach it. it. Doesn't mean you don't need a preacher in that sense. But you have an assurance. And nobody should take it from you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, it is authentic just as it has taught you what? Remain in me stay with me live in me, live out the power of his love and his grace you have the Holy Spirit let him work in you and through you that is practicing the truth